to spend some moments in silence before we pray. And this is actually what Paul is doing in this section. He's praying and he's giving thanks to God for, for the church. And so I think that uh, I would like for us to do that right now. So you pray silently. I'll pray with this microphone. But what, what we're going to pray is um, a prayer of thanksgiving for each other and that we're uh, alive and with one another right now. So let's pray. Lord, we have such a, a rich history of, of people that have known you and that you've known them. And uh, you call us to give thanks to you and for one another and the faith that exists within uh, those who believe in you. And so, Lord, we do that right now. I thank you for your beautiful uh, people here at Redeemer. I thank you for uh, all the churches that have gathered this morning to worship you. Um, I, I think of our brothers and sisters down in Louisiana and Florida that are um, in the midst of the hurricane. We thank you for their faith. We thank you for their presence, and we ask that you would protect them. And so, Lord, help us to uh, worship you, open the eyes of our hearts to know what what uh, means to have a glorious inheritance in, in uh, your son Jesus and what it means to be your body in this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the quote that was up on the screen was uh, by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a uh, pastor in Maryland for years and years. And he, when he retired, he moved up to a smaller town in Montana and started worshiping at a very, very small church uh, in that town near Montana. And in a, at the very end of his life, uh, when he was sort of going in and out of consciousness, he died a few years ago. His two sons, Eric and Leif, said that he would be whispering uh, one phrase uh, near the end, the very end of his life, before he passed into the next. And he was simply whispering the phrase, thank you. Uh, thank you to his family. Thank you to the people that were around him. Now, many think that the Apostle Paul, the person who was writing the book of Ephesians, uh, wrote these letters when he was in prison near the end of his life, and there were tons and tons of problems within the churches that he was writing to. For instance, this one struggled to uh, not worship this goddess named Artemis, the goddess of war. And uh, in other, other letters, they, they had problems in their churches that were similar to ours, sometimes worse. And yet, in each, uh, almost every single one of Paul's letters, he starts by, by giving thanks for them. 
by giving thanks for their faith. That's his uh, starting point with how he addresses uh, each of them. Now, the reason why I think Paul could do this is because he never saw himself above the people within his church. And that's one of the fascinating things about Christianity. And one thing that Paul often mentions is that at the very moment of conversion, uh, you are immediately justified and seen as perfect in God's sight. And that can't ever change, nor can you get any higher with God and God's view of you because he sees you as Christ. And therefore, everyone is equal. And that's what he's given thanks for. Um, It's kind of like. Around 12 years ago, Sarah and I got married in this in this town, uh, my wife, and we are today not more married than we were the moment that we tied the knot and said the vows. But we certainly have grown into the knowledge of what it means to be one, to be uh, united to one another. And the number one way that you grow in your knowledge of what happens when a relationship like that changes or what happens when you convert to Christianity, the number one way you grow is by giving thanks and communicating that thankfulness to God or to one another. That's uh, one of the main things that we need to do if you are married is say, I'm really just, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that you wanted to like, Live your life with me for the, for the rest of your life. Um, that's what Paul's doing as he relates to God and as he relates to other Christians. He's just simply saying, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've uh, been doing and, and the, just the fact that you're, you're around me. Now, through Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, we see two main truths in our passage of what it means to be a Christian community. Uh, And the the church is the inheritance of God, which is the first point. And the church is the embodiment of Christ. So those are the two main things that he points out in this passage that we'll focus on. So point one, uh, Paul gives thanks because the church is the inheritance of God. Now, um, maybe it's just the circles I run in. But I I guess I, I would bet that you're experiencing similar things if you're involved in the church today. Um, There is a lot of cynicism about the evangelical church today. Uh, If if you uh, read the things again that the early church was struggling with, they were dealing with similar issues that we deal with today, sometimes worse. And the fascinating thing about Paul is that he is remarkably free from cynicism. And the reason why is because cynicism denies the gospel. Cynicism looks at the world and says there's really nothing to hope for. There's really no possibility of change. And so why even care? Paul focuses, he could could have very easily focused on how messed up everything was, but he focuses elsewhere, not to the neglect of the sin within the church, But he starts by talking about, in our passage, he starts talking about this inheritance of God's people. I just want us to to think about what it means to inherit something. Um, Because if you grasp this about Christianity, you will understand what it means to hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not something that you wish will happen. It's not like wishful thinking. 
But hope in the scriptures is this remarkable truth that something from the future came into the present reality and your future is so secure and locked in that it can't change. And the main thing that can't change is that you will be raised from the dead. And because of that truth, that very much informs and dictates how I live my present life and more particularly how I interact with you and how you interact with me when you believe that, that the future shapes your present reality. That's how the scriptures talk about hope, that you belong somewhere and it will happen and has already happened in some sense that we saw earlier in chapter one, that you're seated with Christ right beside God in this, in this very moment. And that shapes how I think about my life today. I've used this example before, but I had a professor in seminary who's British, and he said, every time I go back to England, I, I feel out of place because I've been a, away for so long. But when I come back to the States, I, I don't belong here because I'm, I'm British. And he said, increasingly, the older I get, the more I feel at home only in and among God's people when I, when I worship. And he went on to explain that that is actually God's design for us, that we experience being home most when we are in and among other Christians. And that's part of the glorious inheritance of the saints and what it's all about. So maybe uh, it could be the case that you're investigating Christianity right now. You don't know quite what you believe about it. It may it very well may be the case that you're so disenfranchised with the church right now because of the past two years that you just don't know what to think anymore. And uh, yet there is a sense into which I don't know if you guys have had this experience. I certainly have over and over and over and over again. Um, maybe you can't quite put your finger on it, but but when you come to a place of worship, no, no matter really where you are, when you come to a place of worship, there's a part of you that says, this is actually the place and the people that I've been looking for my entire life. And life gets clear that there's a clarifying purpose to your life when you worship among people who know God. That's part of what the glorious inheritance of the saints means. And that's what Paul is praying for them to see in verse 17 of our passage, that God would give them the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him, that is Jesus Christ, that you are in the presence of Jesus when you are among each other. That you are saints. Primarily. And Paul calls all of the Ephesians saints. It's not like there's not like a hierarchy in the church, like everyone's real, real holy. Real, real close to God. Jesus himself actually talked about this with a, a woman that he met at a well around noontime. And she, the, they were, the topic was water and holy land. And. Jesus says to this woman, he says, salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here 
When those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What Jesus is saying is that God's presence is spiritual in this new age, and where God's spirit lives is inside of you, inside of people, inside of human beings. What this means is that wherever Christians are is holy land. That it's a picture of the future. It's in some sense a picture of heaven. Right here. One commentator, Francis Folk, says, The fellowship of Christians is the sphere in which the inheritance of God is found. Now, I know this is a bold, a very, very bold claim. But what Paul is saying is that the church, the collective people of God, is what you're all looking for. It's what human beings instinctively long for. Because it's where you're going to find your hope and your future and the very purpose for your existence. Verse 18, Paul says that he's praying that the Ephesians would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants them to know how much God treasures them and that there's wealth to be found in the saints. The church is not a building, it's people, okay? You are the church. What do you do when you know that there's treasure somewhere for you? You don't have to be a pirate to answer this, right? You go looking for it, right? If there's a lot of money somewhere for you, you go looking for it. Well, God says that there's treasure for you in each of us. That it's inside one another. And as I seek that out through you by giving thanks for you and the soul that God has given you, what begins to happen is that God pours his grace out onto me and I become rich. That's why when you hear people like on their deathbed wisping, thank you. We instinctively know whether we're Christian or not, that person has lived a rich life. That's how a human being is supposed to live. Now, uh, what Paul is saying is like we need to have the, the very interesting image is that we need to have eyes in our hearts that are open to this reality. Because in the world, almost in any sphere, everyone is out for themselves. That's why it's so difficult to be thankful. But in the church, there's to be no competition. Because everyone at the moment of conversion is as holy as the most holy person in this room. You have the highest honor. So there are not those that like really, really get the gospel and those that don't. There are just simply those that are in Christ and those that aren't. And Paul is saying what what it means to be truly alive, to be truly present is to be home in and among God's people. Paul will go on to say in chapter two that there's a way to look like you're living, but you're actually dead inside. But in Christ, you can be physically dead and more alive than others who are walking around. That's why in the old times, and I still want this for our church at some point, um, 
you would walk through graveyards to go to worship. Because Christians believe that the dead in Christ aren't so dead. That you worship with them. We worship together. And Paul is praying that we would be able to see this reality with the eyes of our hearts. And when the eyes of our hearts are opened, when we enter God's presence through God's people, wherever they are gathered, we instinctively know this is home. This is where I belong. I can rest. Point one, the church is the inheritance of God. Point two, the church is the embodiment of Christ. The church, however flawed it may appear to us, is the very embodiment of reality itself. That's what verses 22 and 23 of our passage are saying. And the reason why the church is the embodiment of reality itself is because we're connected to Jesus, who's the creator of the cosmos. He is our head. Now, when uh, the, the guy who wrote this book, Ephesians, his name is Paul, as he's writing this. But prior to him becoming a Christian, his name was Saul. And he did not like Christians. Many think that he uh, killed Christians. He definitely persecuted them. And one day he was on a road uh, heading to this place called Damascus. And the risen Jesus shows up to, to Saul. And he says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And I just want you to think about that for a moment because this is a, a bedrock of how Paul thinks about what it means to be a Christian. He, does, he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Or why are you persecuting the church? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? That Jesus sees Christians as being himself. That in, in Christianity, God takes what's Jesus and gives it to you and takes what's yours and gives it to Jesus. That that sort of union is at play in how Paul thinks about his reality. Now, uh, we in a very small way, this is how we talk about sports. Um, we say things like we lost yesterday to Illinois, right? But in a, in a technical sense. No one in this room was out like on the field, right? What do we mean when we say that? We mean that we are sharers and partakers of the glory or the shame of the win or loss of our team because we're so united to the team. Now, th think about this in terms of your relationship with Jesus. Think of a head with a lifeless body that slowly comes to life as you image the acts and mercy of Jesus in this world. Colossians 2 actually says this phrase, that the church fills up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in this world. That the body com comes to life as you enact Jesus's image in this world. God en envisions saving the world first through Christ, and he wants to involve us as his body. Now, um, three years ago, there was a, uh, a, a dear brother in our church that passed away. Um, his name was Joram, and he uh, had this condition called trisomy 13, and he lived for about 45 minutes. And his twin brother, Tesher, um, survived. 
And he's, he's with us today. He's part of this church. And uh, they visited, Tesher visited Joram's grave last week because it was the date of um, his birth. And when Tesher was on Joram's grave, he started trying to pry it open. And he said, I need to get him out. What do you think Jesus would say to that desire? What do you think the church is for? This is what it means to participate as Christ in the world. That you are to be involved in resurrection. And that's what Paul's point is with the Ephesians. And what what he wants them to see about themselves is like, look, you guys are the very hands and nose and feet of Jesus Christ in this world. And this is the way that God has intended to make himself known to the world through you. And just like our own bodies, which are messy and beautiful, and sometimes they have the appearance of being dead, so is the church. But what you see on the surface isn't all that's going on. We are part of him doing what Paul says is already happening in verse 23, that he's filling up everything in the world. And my question for for us right now is, are, are we scared to think of ourselves this way? That when you walk into the city of Lincoln, Jesus himself walks with you. That when you walk into a classroom, if you're new and going to school for the first time, Uh, This is how Paul wants us to think, that Jesus himself walks in through you. And that's why Paul is praying for them. We don't often think this way. And Paul is saying, I want you to imagine with me what it would be like to think of yourself as the body of Christ, because you are. How humbling and how emboldening that would be that, that God says, I want you to carry out my purposes in the world. And you guys, like Tesher, Tesher instinctively knows what it means to be a Christian, just like many of our children in this church. That's why we need children to teach us the gospel. Paul wants the Ephesians to see in the core of who they are that they have hope and that they are Christ to other people. And the three things about Christ that Paul emphasizes here in, our, in, uh, in his prayer in verses 19 through 22 is that Christ was resurrected, he was ascended, and God made him the ultimate ruler over everything. That Christ is the hope of the world when it comes to death. And it was God, and this is what the Greek says, in his super great enormous strength and power that rose him from the dead. Verses 19 and 20. I love Mark Twain as a writer. I don't love Mark Twain's view of death because he said, I was unconscious of whatever I was trillions and trillions and trillions of years before I was born. And I don't think that I'm going to be conscious after I'm dead. And so I have no reason to think that it won't be the same. That, that's a similar view to what was around in Paul's day through this guy named Epicurus, Greek philosopher. He says that death, how do we know? We don't have any scientific proof of what it's like after we die in the afterlife. It's not good or bad, it just is. And yet deep down, 
When you think about your own existence, when you think about your family members being underground, you ain't satisfied with that. No one's satisfied with with actually saying, you know, death really isn't that bad. No one's satisfied with saying, we don't really know what's we, we don't really know what's true after we die, and so why even peer into it? And Christianity comes along and says, well, there's actually a person that was dead that came back. And he can tell you about it. Chapter four, we'll talk about it. He descended into the lower parts and then he, he who descended is the one that can ascend. Everyone's instinct is like Tesher, whether we admit it or not. Get him out of there. And Jesus says, yes. Let me help you with that. That's why Paul is saying, look at Christ. He's the fullness. God is looking for people humble enough to admit their own sadness and their own fears and their own emptiness and to long for something more. This is exactly what baptism points to. That you're buried with Christ and you're raised with him. If you're united to him. Christ rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. And that's true. That's the truest thing about the world there is. And Christ has more authority and power because of that than anything in this age or the one to come. And what that means is that there's a day coming, you guys, when you will not be controlled by your internal urges, by the depression that has racked your brain. You will not be controlled by external ideologies which are constantly lying to you and that are so seductive. You you will not be controlled by anxiety. You won't. But you're going to have one Lord and one King. And if you find yourself in in a position this morning where you look at your life and you're like, I I have things in my life that I want to stop doing, but I can't stop doing them. I have things in my life that I'm so embarrassed of. Like when when I compare myself to other people, I'm just, I should be so further along and I'm not. Or or you, you just, you know, you think about this past year and you're like, I don't know what to think. I don't know if anybody knows what to think. You know, I feel like a Delmar and a brother Artha. Like, well, I'm, I'm with that guy. I'm with him. You know, it's like, I don't know. God is looking for people to admit their powerlessness, their weakness. If you want to know God on this level that Paul does here in our chapter, and you're like, I just, I want to give thanks for other Christians. It's just hard. I don't know how. If that's where you are, here's, here's how I want to encourage you. Only Christians think like that. Only Christians are dissatisfied with their lack of devotion to God. And God brings that before you and he says, come. There was a second Adam, a second type of human being that you can be full in. Paul does not look at the church and shake his head with disgust. And he certainly could have, but he looks at the church and you know what he sees? Lovely people, 
God's lovely people. And he says, God loves these people. I am these people. We are his glorious inheritance, and he loves us so much that he united us to his son. He sent Jesus. And Paul got there because of his own story. (laughs) He knew that if he could turn somebody that persecuted Christians into the most vibrant Christian that maybe ever lived, uh, then he can save anybody. He can save anybody. And Paul reminds us everywhere that we ourselves once hated God and he still loved us. That's the point. That God can take a hater of him and turn him into a lover of him. But that's for next week. The church is important because it's the very inheritance of God and the embodiment of Christ in the world. We'll continue on next week through the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for each other. We thank you that you have given faith um, to us. That's a foreign entity, as Charles Spurgeon said. It's a plant that is exotic uh, to our nature. And yet it's there. And so Love because you first loved us. We want to love like you.